you know, people bringing this decades and decades of prejudice to this issue. And then, you know, it's sort of being incumbent upon advocates and myself and you, Jared, to just be uh, professional beyond professional. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. I still tell my staff, I'm like, people are going to assume that we're high or we're we're idiots. And so the emails you write need to be perfect. Like, you know, my thing was when I went into court, uh, I would know more about the medical marijuana law than anyone in the courthouse. There you go. Didn't mean I was the best lawyer, but I knew every word and not that's what I would come in. I would, I would bang against that law and I would win cases because I just knew that law. And so it really took that degree of professionalization, I think, to get the American public sort of across the end line and realize mm-hmm. this isn't a stoner comedy. You know, there's, <laughs> there's real issues here and real people advocating for them. This is Lit and Lucid, your after work de-stress smoke sesh podcast. I'm your host, Lit. And I'm your host, Lucid. And we're going to take you on a journey. A journey to discover the truth and find the balance. Every week, we get deep on those thought-provoking topics that ooze out of the cannabis universe. But we also keep it real by illuminating important issues and people in today's culture. So kick back. Consume your favorite cannabis products and get cozy cozy in the the Lit and Lucid Lucid lifestyle. Welcome everybody to the Lit and Lucid podcast. It is Thursday and we are recording another episode of the show. Today joining us is Brian Vicente. He is a founding partner of Vicente Cedarberg Law Firm. Vicente Cedarberg was founded in 2010 in Denver and has since expanded into seven offices with over 75 employees. Now, Vicente Cedarberg isn't just a cannabis law firm. They have been trailblazers in the cannabis law and policy industry since the inception of the regulated industry, representing a wide range of cannabis and hemp businesses. In fact, Brian and his team were leaders in drafting Amendment 64 here in Colorado and have been since named a cannabis law trailblazer by the National Law Journal in 2018 and has made Denver's top lawyers list every year since 2015. So we're super honored to have you on the show today, Brian, um, especially on this homegrown series to tell us a little bit more about the important work Vincente has been providing to the cannabis industry for over 10 years, as well as your really great work, you know, as well as like advocacy and policy work in this industry. So it's a really great honor to have you on today. Um, And with that, welcome. Thanks so much. Yeah, great to be on with you guys. Yeah, Brian, thanks for being on the show today. And, you know, we've been following the good work of Vicente Cedarberg for a number of years. And I think it's safe to say that uh, most in the industry are probably familiar with the name of it and have kind of seen you around. So uh, we'd love to just kind of start out by learning more about you and, and you know, uh, how your journey with cannabis started and then also, you know, leading to uh, you want to be a, a cannabis attorney. Sure. Well, uh, let's see. I mean, I'd like, like most Americans, you know, I, I had some experience with cannabis growing up, um, but I, I don't think it ever really dawned on me that, um, you know, this is a product that could be regulated and this helps medical marijuana patients. It was more just something, you know, rebelling kids use. Um, <laughs> but then as I, I learned more about, you know, cannabis policy and read Jack Herer and sort of, you know, learned of Ethan Nadelman and the, the policy work that was being done in this space. I, when I went to law school at the University of Denver, I really, you know, began uh, pursuing more of a, you know, an intellectual interest in this topic. And I clerked for a judge who was very outspoken against the drug war. I I did a bunch of research and writing for a professor uh, about cannabis policy and, you know, really started to reinforce a lot of what I had 
you know, I'd read growing up in high times or what have you, just about the racially discriminatory nature of cannabis arrests and why marijuana was, you know, illegal to begin with. And it sort of dawned on me as sort of our generation's Vietnam or just something that's such a ridiculous war. It's very costly. Uh, it's a lot of collateral damage to people and, uh, you know, it needs to end. And so really when I graduated from law school, I, I immediately began working in cannabis policy, uh, which was considered career suicide. My, my uh, guidance counselors <laughs> told me that this would be a scarlet letter that would follow me around for the rest of my career and I'd be, you know, homeless. But, um, but it turned out to work out pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And so I've uh, been going after it for a long time now. That's pretty interesting. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure they look back now and they're like, shoot, we shouldn't have said that because <laughs> you've created, you know, a lot around uh, that idea of, you know, pursuing cannabis. Well, and I even think it's funny, you know, like DU's offering cannabis like law classes and different courses now. And so it has to be super ironic for you to be like, we were doing this from the very start. Yeah, no, I, I will give uh, DU full credit. I mean, they, they came around pretty quickly. You know, it was the, the counselors and some of my professors, certainly my classmates were like, you're doing what? I mean, there, there was no marijuana law at the yeah. time, right? It, right? Was, it, was, it was criminal defense, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, pursuing policy in that area was very, you know, it was um, I guess very controversial to pursue any policy changes, but yeah, since then, yeah, we, we were able to sponsor a cannabis chair at the university of Denver law school. I mean, all, all sorts wow. of, you know, fun speaking engagements, like, and now it's a major, uh, sort of magnet for that law school is, is the fact that they have a lot of classes on cannabis policy. And I think it's a really attractive area for new lawyers. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's super exciting. Um, I always wanted to be an attorney and go to DU. So it's like so cool. You guys, you know, have made it happen. Honestly, yeah. I felt that sentiment when we talked to Jeffrey Welsh. I was like, oh, he's living the dream. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I mean, your passion for cannabis has obviously been apparent since the beginning, since before even legalization. I mean, Vicente was started back in 2010. Um, and I know you guys played an integral role in Amendment 64. So you want to take us back to those early days of legalization and kind of how that evolved? Sure. Yeah. So I, you know, I really, it was 2004 is when I started working in cannabis policy full time. And uh, I really, at that point, was doing a lot of advocacy work for medical marijuana patients, mm-hmm. which really affected my views on cannabis, which I already believed it should not be illegal. But when I got to know medical marijuana patients and I started representing them in court and getting to know why they were, you know, these facts about them being drugged through the criminal justice system and belittled. And it was just sort of terrible. And so that really steeled my reserve. Um, And, you know, we were able to sue the state and kind of advance medical marijuana policy in in sort of the mid, uh, mid late 2000s. And that laid some groundwork for, uh, for really the regulated medical system that was in Colorado. So our dispenser, medical dispensaries, right? This beautiful stores we see everywhere now, you know, either weren't there or medical were medical only for years. And, um, and that kind of allowed us to begin to, you know, form this idea about, all right, if it can work for patients and we can have regulated stores and grows for patients, well, why can't we do it for all adults 21 and over? And so, um, you know, starting in, in 2000 or so, we began sort of fundraising and trying to, trying to raise this, um, you know, idea that uh, we would put something on the ballot uh, as we have done at sort of minor levels previously, but, you know, real statewide ballot measure in Colorado to, to tax and regulate marijuana. 
uh, with this backdrop of like, hey, it's already been done for medical marijuana, so it's not that much of an intellectual leap mm-hmm. to imagine it, even though it had been you know, functionally illegal for recreational purposes for over 100 years. Um, so I was one of the, the, the two sort of proponents of that measure, um, it kind of co-directed the campaign, with, uh, Amendment 64, and then also was one of the chief drafters of that law. And uh, yeah, thankfully, in, in November 2012, uh, Colorado voters passed that, and uh, you know, the rest is, is history. It became the first place in the, in the globe to really legalize marijuana. Yeah. yeah, and that's kind of one of the reasons why we're doing our homegrown series is to highlight you know the work that was done in Colorado, and knowing you were a very integral in the work that got you know pushed forward and helped to kind of establish this framework. You know, how does that feel knowing that you not only help to create something in Colorado to help, you know, give medical marijuana and recreational users a uh, point of access, but also something that has been modeled, you know, nationwide now. Yeah, well, it's certainly rewarding, right? And, and there were, I, I will stress, like, there were many years where we were <laughs> struggling in obscurity and, you know, I received death threats. I mean, there was a lot of low, low periods, but myself and Mason DeVert, and my, my colleague, Steve Fox, were kind of the three of us were just we just year after year would find campaigns and patients to represent, just ways to push the envelope on this. Um, then I think we passed a pretty good law, right? It, it wasn't perfect by any stretch, but it was a pretty good constitutional measure. And that really pretty much immediately upon passage of that law, we began fielding uh, meetings with elected officials from around the globe. Like yeah. people would fly in from Japan and Germany wow, and yeah. South Africa and want to meet with us. Now they would also meet with law enforcement and the governor and be like, well, how bad is it? You know, but <laughs> the fact it basically crystallized in people's minds, like there is an alternative to prohibition yep. prior to that. There wasn't right. You know, so it's just like a pipe dream, like what's going to happen, but we had a system in place and it was, you know, it began to function pretty well. And then, you know, those elected officials, whether from other countries or other States really went back and, you know, we, we ran similar campaigns in different places around the country and our, or our colleagues did. And, you know, the, the, the dream sort of became more and more of a reality. And you know, now we have it's 18 recreational states and Canada's legal. And, you know, I think it's sort of viewed as an inevitability that, um, you know, the Colorado model will spread around the globe. Yeah, no, I can see that. I mean, it really has been a huge boon for, you know, cannabis. And I think, that alone, you know, what the work you guys did just to show that it could be done and also the work that was done in the, in the groundwork that was laid in Colorado just proved that, you know, there was maturity around it. Because I think that was the main question when people were talking about cannabis. Even when I got into cannabis, you know, I faced a lot of the same stuff that you did, you know, career suicide. And I had ridicule, you know, I was helping the Institute of Cannabis Research down in Pueblo start up. And they used to make jokes that we were just smoking joints in the basement. But little did they know that we weren't even allowed to use the word marijuana. We had to refer to everything by cannabis. And uh, mm-hmm. it still stuck with me today. And I even look at you know, how some of the frameworks written with marijuana. And I still it pains me inside from my professor that I have to still call it you know, cannabis. But uh, I think you know, what this all led to was that people on the outside were realizing that it wasn't a bunch of stoners. It wasn't just uh, unregulated industry. It wasn't anything that the, they try to frame it up as it was going to be, even saying, oh, it's going to increase teen use and stuff. And we've seen those types of things drop. And, uh, you know, really it was the work you guys did. And it's pretty incredible looking back that you guys were able to, to kind of stand behind it and stand firm and, and kind of weather the storm and the scrutiny really to, to push through. And then now we look back and I think the overarching sentiment is like maybe we were a little bit too hard or a little bit too nervous and, um, you know, it all worked out just fine. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I think you, your point about the, um, you know, people bringing this decades and decades of prejudice to this issue. And then, it, you know, it's sort of being incumbent upon advocates and myself and you, Jared, to just be uh, professional beyond professional. I mean, that's the, I still tell my staff, I'm like, people are going to assume that we're high or we're, we're yeah. idiots. And so the emails you write need to be perfect. Like, you know, my thing was when I went into court, uh, I would know more about the medical marijuana law than anyone in the courthouse. There you go. Didn't mean I was the best lawyer, but I knew every word. And not, that's what I would come in. I would, I would bang against that law and I would win cases because I just knew that law. And so it really took that degree of professionalization, I think, to get the American public sort of across the end line and realize mm-hmm. this isn't a stoner comedy. You know, there's, <laughs> there's real issues here and real people advocating for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's kind of transition now and talk about um, you know, your firm more. And one thing that really stood out when we we're reading more about your firm was the passion you have for your clients. And, and we understand that, you know, the inherent risks that these business owners are taking when they enter the industry. Um, and, you know, there's a wide range of hurdles they may face along the way. You know, tell us a little bit more about your client base and maybe some of the ways you help these individuals navigate uh, the cannabis industry. Yeah. So it's been such a pleasure. I mean, I've, you know, via the firm, we've represented well over a thousand cannabis ancillary businesses over the years. Uh, some clients who I speak to daily or weekly have been with me for 10 or 15 years. You know, I mean, these are folks that, you know, sure, I was a lawyer out there advocating for an unpopular issue. These guys were growing marijuana in a very murky system uh, to help medical marijuana patients. You know, like they, they're they put their necks on the line, right? So I think there's a fair amount of folks like that, that they're still in the game. They're, you know, they're uh, still providing jobs for Coloradans or, or certainly represent people across the country uh, and fighting the fight. Now, of course, you know, we've had many, many other individuals get into this space over the years as more states have passed laws. You have business owners, prospective business owners in those places. Um, and, you know, our job is basically to help them fulfill their dreams. You know, if they want to open a cannabis store or they want to open the world's largest cannabis grow or they're a social equity person trying to figure out which type of, uh, you know, job in this they can afford or if it's a delivery business, whatever, you know, it kind of helped them to navigate that uh, with an absolute eye on compliance, right? We, we, I believe, and I tell my staff this all the time, like, you know, our clients, they need advice about falling, dotting every I and crossing every T. Because I believe that if our clients make mistakes and uh, cannabis is, is being viewed as being sold illegally or it's not being tracked, I think the system could collapse. I mean, maybe we're, we're too far out from that and the genie can't be put back in the bottle, but I firmly believe that our clients need to be an example of how to run a responsible business, how to pay taxes, how to follow all environmental laws and labor laws and all these sort of things, which in the cannabis space, it's complicated. You know, it, these are complicated regulations that shift all the time. So our job is to really help them toe the line uh, while still accomplishing their kind of business goals. Yeah. And that's so important. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, what if you were a business owner even, you know, five, 10 years ago and you're Googling, you know, cannabis attorney locally or something and (laughs) nothing comes up. And so just the fact that like you guys are here and you've been in it for so long and have, you know, the knowledge and the resource base to be able to help these people, that is, you know, so valuable. Um, And I mean, even the fact that you guys have now 75 employees across seven different, you know, offices, that's incredible. Like I said, I remember when you guys were like just a little firm 
firm in Denver and look at how much you guys have grown. And so that just shows me, obviously, you know, people believe in this as well. You know, there's, like you said, people are trying to build their dream and you guys are right there helping them do this. Um, and then also, you know, the other part is the policy, right? So you guys do law, um, but then the policy kind of going back to, you know, laws and regulations and things like that. And I know you guys also, you know, work with local and state municipalities on, you know, shaping these types of regulations. So what does that look like? Like, how does that all, you know, transpire? Yeah, so that's really a key part of our sort of business and our passion, right, is that we're not just lawyers that follow the law. We we began by drafting the law, right, Colorado's legalization law. Uh, we wrote some other city laws prior to that, you know, to, to legalize marijuana or medical marijuana. Um, but, you know, we have stayed at the kind of cutting edge of this issue. So we're, we are currently advising governments, you know, across the country and, and sometimes across the globe, uh, state and local governments, just how to draft cannabis laws that work for them, you know, and what works in uh, California might be very different than what works in New Jersey, right? So yeah. we're, we're kind of, you have to listen to people and understand the framework that makes sense for them. But we have a lot of experience in that space, so we can often help to navigate that. And that's part of our broader mission, right, as a law firm, is we're, we're trying to spread cannabis legalization and medicalization uh, as far as we can. And we just think prohibition has been a failure. And that, you know, not only is fulfilling to us, because we think we're on the right side of history and, you know, we're helping to stop some of these arrests and, you know, use tax revenue for good purpose, uh, for, for solid purposes, Um but, you know, we're also then able to advise our clients. We can say, actually, do you know what's happening now? Because <laughs> D.C. is about to do this in regards to banking or your state is about to, you know, uh, have a lot more regulators knocking on your door. And, yeah. and here's how you prepare for that. So it allows our clients, I think, a little bit of a competitive advantage to kind of understand how the policies are shaping before their eyes. I kind of like that. You know, and one thing that you noted, and it's going to lead into my next question, but you're talking about how, you know, municipalities, they have different needs and stuff, you know. Um, what does that look like? Because we, and, and, you know, I'm kind of being a little vague here because my next question is more on like, why isn't it all the same? But, uh, you know, what what are some of these differences you might find across, you know, East and West Coast or you know, New Jersey and Colorado or Oregon or Florida? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of one of the things that makes my job really interesting and, and I guess makes us relevant is that, you know, you have multi-state operators, many of whom we represent, or you have just local guys. And you know, the laws in Michigan are very different than the laws in Arizona. Mm -hmm. So you kind of, it, it keeps us relevant because we have to pay attention to those and help guide people mm -hmm. whether they're just in one state or they're in multiple. Uh, and then it seems like states always find a way to do it a little different. You know, you have <laughs> legislators, um, typically at this point, most, most state laws are being passed via the legislature, right? So you have Republicans and Democrats kind of battling it out, yeah. where historically it was all, all these laws were written by guys like me who are just advocates and put a ballot initiative for mm -hmm. voters who vote on them. Um, so, you know, you have uh, these sort of competing interests by your, your law enforcement, Republicans typically, your Democrats who might be more focused on revenue or just, you know, criminal justice issues. Uh, and then there's a very, very robust discussion in certain areas about social equity, mm -hmm. right? How do we acknowledge the wrongs that cannabis prohibition has done to our country or certain populations within our country uh, and craft laws to address that? That's like a very meaningful conversation in mm -hmm. New York. That doesn't mean shit in Alabama. They don't care at all. You know, it's like, they're just like, they, they don't, they won't listen about social equity. They're not putting that into law. Mm -hmm. So it's just, you know, these are the things we have to kind of navigate and, 
and uh, you know help our clients figure out what to do. That is interesting. You know, you'd almost think just knowing where cannabis came from, maybe they don't understand the history of cannabis. And I mean, because the, the way I look at it is like that almost should be a standard written in, just like New York's doing. But just like write it in at the beginning. Yeah, make it no, a part I, of what I think you're, doing. you're completely right. It's just I think you have different legislators with different different priorities. You know, interesting. And, and, and social equity is not a big priority in certain in certain communities. You know. Huh. Well, so, you know, and that leads to my next question, which most people probably are, are obvious, you know, what my question was. But, you know, as we move towards um, maybe like a, a form of you know, federal legalization, do we see, you know, regulations kind of tightening up and becoming standardized or, or, you know, more in tune with neighboring states? Because that is a problem. You know, we see it from our end. You know, we do marketing for companies and it's completely different. And like, I can't even imagine, you know a company operating in Colorado and using metric and then another state using a whole different seed to sell tracking system. And that's just like one example, but it makes it really difficult for businesses to operate when these regulations are so different in every state. I mean, for instance, like for us, we have clients in Colorado and California and in Michigan and Oregon, and, and we have to take different sets of photos because their packages are all completely different. And it's just like a pain and the websites are all have to be completely different because everything is just different. And so do you see that changing as we get to federal legalization or some form of communication between states to help make some of this a little bit simpler, or a little more standardized? Yeah, so things will get more standardized. I mean, there's there's definitely an arc, right, in, in cannabis policy. And the sort of, you know, I guess the first part of the arc is prohibition. And then you you sort of you hit medical marijuana and then it's a better medical marijuana law with regulatory structure and then it's legalization. And then it's, you know, legalization that doesn't involve, you know, suit tons of restrictions on everything. Right. And, and so there's a, there's a arc towards more, you know, liberal policies or business friendly policies at the beginning. The problem is at the beginning, we're still at the beginning in many ways, right? We yeah. have many, many States that don't have legal marijuana, some that don't have a real structure for medical marijuana, uh, sales. And so, you know, they're kind of treating marijuana like plutonium because they're at the beginning of the arc and they're scared, you know, mm -hmm. we got to figure out the right thing to do. We do a lot of lobbying in DC. So we're, you know, I like to think that we're in the room with the people that are going to make these new laws, or at least we'll be able to get some input. And, you know, I keep saying we're only a couple years away. I've been saying that for 10 years, <laughs> but it, we're, we're getting closer, you know, <laughs> Uh, and, and I believe that the way federal legalization will look is, is kind of similar to alcohol, right? So you, you don't have federal alcohol criminal laws, you know, it's all done at the state level. Uh, and then within states, you know, Colorado is very different than Utah. Utah has these weird kind of state run stores and they used to have chastity curtains so you couldn't see the liquor, you know, and Colorado is, is, is open on Sunday now. And so I just think it's going, there'll be some normalization and eventually we'll have interstate transport mm -hmm. probably a couple years after federal legalization and interstate commerce. Um, but I, I do think that states, at least for the first couple decades of legalization, will have a fair amount of control over how this product is done in their state. And then probably, there'll probably be some nuance therein that mm -hmm. you guys will have to navigate, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, that was kind of one of the things that we were thinking about. So we talked to some people on the East Coast and like even one small example is they like told us like, oh, we want to do, you know, this study on driving while high and we're going to, you know, figure out all these laws. And we're like, OK, well, but did you know CU Boulder already did that study? Like maybe you should check that out, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so like, does that get frustrating for you? Like it seems like people are trying to reinvent the wheel when like the wheel has already been created. Yeah, it 
It definitely does. I mean, there's not like a centralized hub in many ways right. you know, for, for information. Um, and we kind of just got to sort of work our way through it. You know, it's, 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 it's frustrating and, and often, it's not so interesting. It's like when new states decide to legalize, there's some working, you know, processes out there. Like Colorado works pretty damn well, you know, like they could just take our law, make some <laughs> tweaks and, and make it their law, but instead they'll start from scratch yeah. and kind of do all these crazy things and go in circles. And so, you know, many of those states are starting to get advice from people like, like our law firm, or there's other, you know, great subject matter experts out there, former regulators and stuff, but there's still a lot of reinventing the wheel going on. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, kind of piggybacking on that, you know, what are some good takeaways you think that Colorado did right and, you know, Amendment 64 that would be really good for, you know, other states to probably look at in the future? Sure. Yeah. I think we did a lot of things right. I mean, I think the, um, the you know, the general li business licensing structure we set up is absolutely the framework for pretty much every medical marijuana law we've ever seen, right? You have your you have your background checks on your licensed cultivators, your licensed stores, and your licensed manufacturers, and your licensed testing labs. That's kind of the big four. Some states will tack on, you know, transportation and, and uh, social use clubs and stuff, which is awesome. And we got there too. It just took us a while, <laughs> yeah. you know, but, but that framework, I think, has worked well. Um, you know, allowing local control, I think, generally makes sense. Um, local control over zoning and things like that. Yeah. Uh, and I think our tax structure has worked well. I mean, it's been a massive boom for the state, you know, financially, and especially during COVID and these times where, you know, state governments are really hurting and local governments, like, you know, we have a tax structure that by and large has allowed most cannabis consumers to move into the regulated market, right? Instead of buying from their buddy, down the street who they bought from the black market for years, right? You know, they've largely moved in that system because the taxes aren't too high, but they're high enough to produce considerable revenue for the state. So, and the final thing I think that has worked out well is like, we didn't cap the number of licenses. We didn't say there'll be three marijuana grows for the whole state, you know, and some states have done that and it has just led to, you know, only billionaires can own these licenses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If there's a crop failure, it affects patients or consumers statewide. This sort of monopolistic behavior we avoided. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would agree with a lot of that, you know, and especially the idea around the licensing. That's probably our biggest beef in other states is, you know, they set up this framework where uh, competitive licensing structure and then the requirements for those are just like outlandish. And, and you look and you go back to like this idea of equity, even and that's like really what points out to me is like the individuals who were most harmed by this don't have PhDs. They don't have $3 million in the bank. They don't have, you know, a whole backing and a board of directors and all these things. And it's going to be really difficult for them to put that together. And so they're essentially just limiting the market and the applicants and, and ultimately the creativity and the ingenuity and, and, you know, the, the care for the community and the care for the brand and the product they're putting out, that's what they're limiting. And, and that's what we yeah. see with Colorado is that, you know, there's a lot of companies that are coming in now and, and buying up um, some of the great companies that Colorado has helped birth. And, and I think that's just a testament to having a free market and allowing and consumers to, to kind of push these companies to, to push the envelope, to become better, to become more responsible, uh, more caring, you know, more conscious of the community. And that's what's going to be missing in other states. And so, um, you know, they may own a, and control a certain share of the dispensaries, but um, I think what they're going to miss out on is this, these kind of homegrown, you know, brands and stories uh, that we have in Colorado. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And everywhere, everywhere is doing a little bit different, right? But, you know, these states that have, you know, Florida has a dozen operators only. I mean, it's just an oligopoly, right? Like yeah. there's no, it's no way for the common man to enter that space. And I think that's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, one final point on that, since you brought it up, do you think it's surprising that we finally are just passing like social consumption lounges? Like <laughs> it's been forever and like we are finally almost here. Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, and I think it just speaks to the fact that the real leaders on this issue are the people, mm-hmm. you know, it's not elected officials mm-hmm. and, you know, we are office drafted, I think it was 301 or whatever it was, you know, five years ago that would have allowed social use clubs in Denver and it passed by like 65%, but they just couldn't implement it. You know, it's just the state has, you know, you have these elected officials that just don't get it. And so it's it's just our job to continue to force the issue. But, you know, I'm concerned Colorado is going to start falling behind the curve. You yeah. know, you have other states like New Mexico, it's very easy to get a social club, use club now uh, <laughs> license, you know, as of April 1. So are we really going to be considered the Silicon Valley of cannabis for much longer? Or are we kind yeah. of giving that away because of this? reluctance by elected officials to to grow as the as the movement grows. Yeah, I can see that. Or like even looking at like Vegas or like New York, I know those are like two big hubs for social lounges. Yeah. So I yep. can see that. Like and that's our tourism dollars too, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a big issue. And elected officials should be thinking about it if we want to keep the tax revenue coming in. Yeah. Well speaking about big issues, um one other thing that I know is very popular here in Denver is the subject of psychedelics. And I know that you guys are teaming up with uh, Grasslands at South by Southwest in Austin here in March to, I I think you're hosting some sort of conversation. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about your guys' support of psychedelics? Yeah, so we we are very much in support of dismantling the drug war. (laughs) You know, so, so much of our work and my work in particular has gone, has been around cannabis. Um, You know, and I speak about why, but it's definitely very widely used compared to like mushrooms or something, a smaller segment of society. But now that we've kind of cracked open the dam a little bit mm-hmm. with cannabis, I feel like the other drugs are now on the table and we can talk about whether our policies around them are based in common sense, right? And when you look at psychedelics in particular, it's very hard to argue that these should be felonies to have to possess a small amount and that there's not medical value when studies are showing there is. And so it's similar to the arguments and the discussions we had about cannabis for years. And fortunately, you know, we've got, uh, we've been able to, you know, pass some measures in Denver with it. That's kind of our, our history as we start locally, then we pass things at the statewide level. Um, so we're involved in, in an effort to, um, which I, it's public to some extent, but it's our belief that Colorado voters will be voting this November uh, to legalize psychedelic mushrooms for personal use. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the way that the law was drafted by some of my colleagues here, it'll allow for other other psychedelic substances to be added on, ibogaine, things like that, over ayahuasca over time. So I think uh, that will be a remarkable piece of legislation. Right, if it passes, and I, I think it will. So part of what we're doing, and I will be in Austin, Texas on Monday, which is sort of a funny place to go to talk about drugs, but it's during uh, <laughs> it's during South by Southwest when I guess everyone convenes there to talk about exciting new ideas. And uh, we'll be talking about basically like the future of the psychedelic reform movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're involved in not only drafting some, some state laws uh, to change uh, uh, to change policies around, around around psychedelics, we're also involved in some pretty prominent lawsuits where we're trying to push the federal government to 
uh, stop criminalizing essentially people for using psychedelics. Yeah. So we're speaking about both those issues. That's pretty, pretty incredible work, you know, especially at the time where, um, you know, these, these, uh, you know, psychedelics are actually coming out as being therapeutics. And I, and I know that a lot of your work was driven in, in the cannabis arena to push, you know, medical marijuana. And so I'm sure there's certainly a fair amount of passion in the same arena to push, you know, these therapeutics for individuals and, and kind of look at it as more of, you know, that angle versus like a recreational. So I know we're certainly excited to kind of see uh, the Colorado ballot initiative, you know, pass and make it through. That would be awesome because I think people talk about it and they think, you know, Denver as a whole or, you know, it's all it's all legal now and stuff. And they don't realize that it's just Denver County. And so even the metro area is kept out of the loop and, and obviously the whole state. So I think giving people the opportunity to have another route to find some healing or some therapeutic aspect, I think that is always a plus in a society that, it was plagued by mental health issues. So uh, I think that's great of you guys to, to recognize that and have optics on it and then also be, um, you know, advocates and then in the trenches really to, to help move some of that forward. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I mean, it's just sort of, it's like cannabis, you know, the more you talk to people that have used the substance for medical purposes, the more you realize that there's absolutely legitimacy there and that, that more research should be encouraged and that these people shouldn't be criminalized in the meantime because they're using a substance which is not lethal, mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to the many substances which are uh, prescribed for individuals which are for mental, with which have you know mm -hmm. uh, overdose value, uh, which are currently pushed on people who have mental health issues. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, we we beat up alcohol a lot, but it's just it's so prevalent in our society and it's also so destructive too that you know the, the there's there's certainly some irony in some of this and. Uh, you know, we, we appreciate the work you guys are doing to, to kind of bring some of that to light. So, you know, with that, we appreciate the story you shared today. And really, you know, your, your story is one that uh, really fits the Homegrown series perfectly and one that helps to kind of put Colorado on the map and, and show the world that uh, there's very strong advocates and really well put together companies here in Colorado uh, to kind of help usher in this national legalization that we're all looking for. So kudos to you. Kudos to the work you guys have done. Uh, we're very grateful for it. And I know that uh, you know, millions around the country and the world are really grateful for your passion for the plant and um, helping to kind of make it more of a palatable topic. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, guys. It's been it's been a joy talking to you and um, keep fighting the fight. Appreciate <laughs> you. We've got a couple more last fun questions, though. So we're pulling all of our guests this season to find out, um, you know, what is one of your favorite places in Colorado to, to eat? Um. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, didn't, I didn't i didn't see that one coming I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't prep for that um i'm gonna go i'm gonna go with just the south federal pho scene oh, going okay. on go. here nice the, v, the vietnamese food on south federal so there's there you know, go pho 70, pho 79 there's a number of <laughs> wonderful places down there i like going to yeah yeah for people who don't visit or haven't been to colorado yeah there's like a whole road of like pho places and it's like 79 <laughs> 84, yeah. I don't know, but there's yeah. so many of them. Um, and it's fun to try them all. So that was fun. It is. Yeah. 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 Delicious. Yeah. Cool. Especially on like a cold Colorado day, it sounds nice to have some like warm pho. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I feel like for any meal, it's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, it. Brian, one final question. Uh, we are the Lit and Lucid podcast. So are you lit or are you lucid? I think I'm going to go with Lucid because it's during the work day here, but <laughs> we're, all, we're almost done working, so I'll get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Awesome. I like it. Well, thank you again for having us. Uh, we, we're really uh, grateful for this conversation and grateful for uh, the work you, you've done and, and are continuing to do, Brian. You're a, a great advocate for this industry. 
Uh, thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Great talking to you. Take All right, care. Thanks. With that, All I'm right. lit. Uh, I'm lucid. And that's it. Laters. <laughs>